joined by another founder who was named top 30 under 30 by Marketing Magazine, Young Entrepreneur of the Year by Desjardins Bank and Emerging Entrepreneur of the Year by the Toronto Board of Trade. He started his career doing brand management marketing at Johnson & Johnson and co-founded Five Crowd that later got acquired and now has founded another company called Shelfgram that gives brands and retailers more in-store visibility to find actionable shopper insights. His name is Bram, Bram Warshawski. Bram, it's a pleasure to have you on our show here today on Off The Record. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Excited to chat. Cool. Um, very much looking forward to this conversation from the time that we connected last time. Uh, you have a lot of interesting stories and insights to share, so really excited to get, get to them with you today and share it with our audience. Yeah, um, that's right. And I, I think you had Rachel on as well, right? My, my co-founder. So that's right. Um, that's right. Yeah, no, it's great. Yeah. We've got the duo now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Bram, first question I have, uh, or the first thing I want to ask you is that you, you had, I think three, I believe pack it in moments in your startup journey. Uh, when you were kind of like at that point, you were ready to quit. Um, mm -hmm. was it, was it one, two, three, and can you, Tell me about what they were. Yeah, two, two for sure. Maybe like a, a soft third one. Um, but yeah, like, you know, every company kind of has the like, uh oh, like it's over uh, moments. And, um, you know, what we found is basically the only thing that gets you through it is just like raw passion because when you're crying alone at night in the shower and you're worried about making payroll, uh, there's really not much that, you know, it's going to console you. The other thing is like, it's probably pretty easy for a lot of entrepreneurs to kind of get back in the industry and just interview and get a great stable job. And, you know, once you give up that like paycheck every two weeks, you start to realize, uh, you know, that it's very real. Uh, so yeah, we had a couple of those moments. Uh, one of them was when uh, we were working with a, a pretty large uh, company uh, here in Canada and uh, they were a subsidiary of a multinational and uh, somebody in the U.S. decided to change strategies. And even though our champion here loved our service and everything was great, mm -hmm. Uh, they had kind of given us the heads up that probably they were going to have to stop working with us because someone they didn't know in another country kind of made a decision. And it's like, it's things like that where, you know, sometimes there's just stuff kind of outside of your control and uh, all you can really do is just adapt and kind of keep going and try to find that founder magic you've got and, you know, make something happen. So um, now when I meet other entrepreneurs, I, uh, especially in the early stages, I almost like don't even care what the idea is or what traction they've got. I, I just care about the passion because irrespective of what happens on the journey, you're going to hit those moments. And to me, that's kind of the only thing that gets you through it. You got to be willing to like dedicate a decade of your life to solving a problem. Oh, for sure. That's one thing that's been coming up a lot uh, with all the interviews I've done with entrepreneurs that a startup journey, you got to commit to like eight to 10 years, like start yeah. to end, like exit wise. And that's like totally. a commitment that you're making, right? To yourself and to the people around you. Um, yeah. I had a question actually. Um, we've been also on the, you know, stick end, I guess is the expression, whatever it is, of like <laughs> yeah. change management experiences. Yeah. Um, where, we were working with somebody and then a new CEO came and brought his, his own crew in or whatever. Like he had his own idea and his own process and just did a kind of clean slate swap. swap. Mm -hmm. um, from that experience specifically, and I know you probably have another one you want to talk about as well um, in terms of packet, in those packet in moments, but in that specific example, what would you recommend 
two entrepreneurs now from that experience you went through in terms of how to combat that or try to maybe like prevent something like that from happening in the event of change management? Well, I, I don't really think it's something you can try to prevent uh, so much as it's out of your control. I would joke with, you know, Rachel, my co-founder all the time that dealing with enterprise companies, it's kind of like, you know, walking from, you know, a couple blocks. And by the time you get downstairs to get out of uh, wherever you are, the person's like left the company, changed roles on vacation, doing their MBA, got pregnant, boss changed. It's like, it's brutal uh, dealing with, um, you know, big companies and change management for sure. I think you just have to kind of go with the flow um, and find the silver lining. Uh, for example, you know, if, if you've got a passionate client and all of a sudden they're managed out of their business and they, they go somewhere else, they're not going to forget what happened at the last company and probably they're going to stay within the industry. And that's a new opportunity. That's a new sales lead that you've just got, right? So I think early on in the entrepreneurial journey, all of those things are hurting you. Uh, and then later on, they start to drive organic growth in your business, um, which is interesting. The other thing is, um, if you want to manage it, you have to have multiple stakeholders uh, within your customer. Otherwise, you're sort of exposed to like a concentration risk uh, with your customers. So what we always found is we needed a junior champion, somebody who's like fighting the fight for us, an internal salesperson. We needed procurement aligned because they're the one that would you know, cut the purchase order. And then we just needed some sort of senior stakeholder. And all they'd have to do is meet with us once a year and just say like, this is an okay thing, like, please move forward. And we can operate under that purview. And um, we were able to basically assess the account health of any one of our customers um, on whether or not we had those three pillars in place. And if one of them wasn't there, the account success plan was, okay, we got to, you know, level up our junior champion, something like that. So I think to an extent, um, you know, you can manage it, you can't prevent it, but um, it's not as bad as it sounds because, uh that actually is something that drove like huge growth, huge growth in our business. Um, mm. Most of our customers started to come from just industry turnover. Oh, really? Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like people just go to new companies and then they'd be Bring like, you, they, you know, yeah, well, you know, you start a new company, you're looking for early wins. You want to prove you're like a, you know, first 90 days, like, right. So mm. if you had a couple wins from the last company and they were supplier enabled, you're going to reach out to those suppliers. Uh, for the same reason that when that CEO came in, they're doing change management and, you know, potentially cutting an existing supplier. Very true. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, so that was one example, I think, if I'm not mistaken, what was like the second one? Oh, second one. Um, <laughs> that one was really bad because I was also like real sick at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I was probably working too hard and my immune system was shot and, um, you know, Rachel called me and she's like, Hey, it's happened. Like we've lost a customer and they were about 30% of our, uh, of our revenue. And, uh, it just felt like, you know, you feel it physically. It was like a kick in the gut because, <laughs> you know, the, there's a human impact once you have employees, right. You feel like you're sort of stewarding them and, uh, it can be really hard because, um, at least I felt like a, a real sense of like, I, I need to, you know, help these people grow and, you know, they're counting on me for their mortgage, things like that. Um, in the end, we actually didn't lose them. Uh, we actually thought we were going to lose them as a customer from basically the moment we signed on. And then, uh, even when the company was acquired, we were pretty sure we were going to lose them any day. I'm pretty sure they still work <laughs> with five crowd. Uh, so they're just one of those customers, you know? Um, but the lesson that we learned through that, by the way, is that we sold into the wrong part of the organization and, uh, that's an interesting thing. So we, we closed the deal, but we had sold it into procurement and um, we, you know, we offered a lot of cost savings. So procurement teams loved us. 
And then when we went to the business, uh, they just were like, okay, like we don't have any projects for you. Like, why are we paying you guys? Mm. So, you know, at some point they decided to kind of cut it, but then they sort of came up with new, new ideas and new projects. It's actually a funny story on that. We were going to lose them. And the way that we didn't, uh, Rachel and I were sort of talking strategy. And I said to her, I'm like, I have no idea what the, how we're going to keep them, if we're going to keep them, but you got to go to this company's head office. And uh, it's one of those kind of magical moments. She just got an Uber, showed up at the company, walked into the atrium and started um, just having lunch with people, like just sitting down being like, hey, how's it going? And they're like, do, do you work here? Like, no, <laughs> but, <Awesome. you> know, <laughs> I just want to introduce myself. Here's what our company does. She came away with like, you know, 12 mm -hmm. projects. So, you know, they were paying our subscription fees for the software and uh, they weren't making use of it. And, you know, so ultimately you just got to like get close to your customers. So we managed to kind of salvage, I think, in, in both of those like, uh oh moments. Um, but I sometimes reflect like it could have gone the other way, you know, mm -hmm. it would have just been another statistic of like, you know, four to five new businesses fail in the first year, whatever those numbers are. It's like pitifully bad, you know, so you got to be a little crazy, I think, to be an entrepreneur. Uh, but in those moments, that's really where, you know, the kind of you know, that, that's where entrepreneurs are really made, I think. Exactly. That's where we really shine, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, in those two examples, was there one in specific that you walked away with, with some really kind of practical knowledge um, or judgment recalibration or as an entrepreneur? Uh, like just with respect to kind of new learnings or new ways of looking at things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think like um, something we kind of messed up was um, cash flow, right? So we had both come from the corporate world where you're managing a big PL. And uh, for the most part, like, you know, we were at like, we worked at companies like Johnson and Johnson, Coca-Cola, Air Miles, like they don't need to worry about cash flow. Uh, so that was never something that we were concerned about. And then our business started growing real fast. And we had to pay freelancers around the world. We had folks in 150 cities we were sending payments to. Uh, we had software fees. We had, you know, employees, office expenses, all that. Uh, but of course, big companies who are customers, like they don't pay you right away. It's like 90, sometimes like 120 days. So business is growing. P&L looks great. We should be making money. All of a sudden, there's like no cash in the bank account. And we were two 24-year-olds with basically no assets. <laughs> so yeah, I think like uh, key learning is like you've got to manage cash flow. I think I met another entrepreneur once who told me something very sobering that you know revenue is kind of a, a vanity metric, right? You can uh, have like 500 million in revenue but still be unprofitable. Like literally, someone selling exactly. lemonade has a more profitable business, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> that so you know, is revenue, so true. revenue, yeah. revenue is like vanity. Um, profit is sanity. Profit's where yeah. you start to make sense of things, but cash flow is reality. Um, so mm, you got to manage like cash flow. Yeah. S say that again. He said revenue. Oh yeah, yeah. So revenue, revenue, is, vanity. revenue is vanity. Yeah, profit sanity, but cash flow is your reality. Mm, yeah. Like it, yeah. The one that stuck with me. I'm like, that's just so true. Yeah. yeah. I messed up the third part of that sentence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's. Yeah. Um, and that's like the one thing I really hope. Uh, well, I think now in the market now, there's more and more companies that are bootstrapping, not going to VCs. You know, mm -hmm. so quickly. Mm -hmm really building out their business and, and trying to achieve profitability and cash flow, mm -hmm. you know, being cash flow sustainable. And that's how a business should run. Like, you know, there should be more attention to those type of companies than to like those VC ones that probably behind the scenes are just burning cash. And they yes. just, once they get that VC money, it's like basically a drug. They just have to keep injecting it into them until like for top ups, you know? 
Yeah, like if you've got growth capital, I think it's good. But, you know, my diagnosis of the situation, because I went to business school, right? So, like, I was always taught revenue should be higher than costs. And, like, you know, yeah. these are, like, wild ideas in the startup space. Yeah, I'll talk to people. I'm like, oh, who are your customers? And they're like, customers. Like, we have investors. We have users. Like, why do we need customers, right? And the other, like, troubling thing is that the word company and the word product have almost become synonymous and, you know, I'm from a marketing background. I'm like, mm. guys, there's three other P's, right? It's like, <laughs> like, it's not just about product, but I think what's happened is that the big tech companies have such huge market caps and they're taking advantage of it. It's, it's really hard to innovate. It's much easier to do like an all stock deal and just acquire another product. And so if you're a VC, like you want to fund companies that are going to be bought by a bigger tech company, that's like the yeah. fastest path to liquidity and good valuations. It's kind of turtles all the way down. So yeah, I'm bootstrapping and I, uh, I definitely think there's like a viable path to like building real businesses. That's a good segue into my next question I wanted to ask. And you touched upon already a bit earlier in our conversation. It's about kind of passion. And like at the end of the day, as an entrepreneur, I think the only thing that drives you is that passion at the end of the day. Uh, it helps you kind of push through those roadblocks, those challenges that are always coming at you left, right, and center. Um, but there are also a lot of moments, obviously, as an entrepreneur where you don't feel passionate and you don't want to keep doing what you're doing. What helped you overcome those specific moments in your journey? Yeah, I, what I found is like, um, you know, for the most part, I'm pretty fired up about what I'm working on, right? And I'm so grateful for the opportunity to do that because, you know, I hear from friends who don't love their jobs and it's like, I just, you know, um, that's hard. It's real hard. I um, I think what what I've sort of shifted in those moments is to stop working on things based on business importance or urgency and to just shift to working on the parts of the business that I'm passionate about uh, that get me excited. And like, you know, it's probably not the best for the business in the short term, but longitudinally, it'll manage your energy levels and kind of remind you why you're excited. Um, the other thing is kind of like corny as it sounds is just zooming out and reflecting on your vision. Um, mm -hmm. That's usually the thing that, you know, is related to the business problem you're solving. So, you know, I sort of find those two things, um, you know, if you're kind of down and out, just don't do the tedious stuff that kind of needs to get done, or even the things that are business important, just reevaluate your task list and prioritize it based on just the stuff you kind of want to work on, at least for a little bit. Um, that's kind of what's always worked for me. The other thing is having a co-founder is awesome, right? Because like probably they're not experiencing the same lows, at least at the same time as you. And that was surprising for me. I found that uh, my lows were usually pretty lonely because I didn't really want to talk with my family or my friends. You know, they'd be like worried, like, hey, is Bram okay? Like, I don't know, right? Called me crying, like shit like that. Um, at the same time, it's also pretty lonely when you do well. Like, you know, I'd close like the biggest sale of the company and I'd be in such a high, right? Like I've never done hard drugs, but I imagine it's like kind of the same. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. <laughs> but like, is. I also, also couldn't really talk with my friends and family because you just come across as like a cocky jerk, right? Like yeah. nobody wants to hear about that, but having a co-founder is amazing because they understand the blood, sweat and tears that's gone into all the sweat equity and you can privately either celebrate with them or call them, you know, and you just sort of even each other out. I think, um, especially for first time founders. That's why I've seen some stats that it's you're way more likely to succeed with a co-founder. Yeah. That might be the best bet. Yeah. That's a great point. Like what's, I mean, with entrepreneurs fund where Rachel's at, their recommendation is to have only two co-founders ideally. Mm -hmm. What's mm -hmm. your perspective on that? You think two is like, like your only option as a startup um, 
um, team, or do you think they could work out with three or four co-founders? Yeah. You know, it's, um, I think a lot of this stuff is situational and that's the hard thing. Um, you know, I sometimes joke around, like people will tell you with total confidence, like you got a bootstrap and then other people are like raise money or, um, you know, like never hire your friends. No, no, no. You should definitely hire your friends. Like always have a contract. Yeah. Like, don't worry about it. It's like, these are not just like conflicting pieces of advice. They're, they're like mutually exclusive. Uh, so I think everything's situational. There's a lot of nuance. Um, it's why I've tried to kind of stay away from, you know, even just telling folks what to do. I think just sort of sharing case studies and stories, and then you can decide if that resonates with your own situation. But there, I've seen a couple of companies that have done really well with like three, sometimes even four uh, co-founders. Um, personally, though, like my conviction is, especially for first-time founders, you're, you don't just want to do it solo because so much of it is the mental game and it's like real hard. Uh, so having a co-founder, um, especially for your first time, is like totally worth it. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to also bring up something that I read recently to something you just mentioned. Um, Andrew D'Souza, who's the CEO of ClearCo said, as a CEO, his job is to always assess what his team members are passionate and want to work on versus stuff that they don't want to work on. Mm -hmm. And he mentioned in his like LinkedIn post analogy, it was like, which I don't know if it's pleasant or not, but he said it's real in the sense that other people's garbage are other people's treasure and vice versa. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so like some people really would love doing certain things that other people don't. Um, did you ever come across anything like this, you know, through building out the teams? Yeah, totally. It's an interesting balance, right? Because, um, you know, you, you can't just tell people like, do whatever you want, right? It's not a really a good way to, to manage a business, but you do want people to be invested in it and have uh, agency over what they're working on. So the way that we did it is um, we would actually create our uh, annual and then quarterly goals for the business. And then we would um, ask everyone on the team to sort of submit a proposal on which goals they wanted to work on and um, kind of how they wanted to, to work on it. And then uh, it was kind of a meeting of the minds, but uh, in most cases we just accepted it and we're like, that sounds like a good plan, go for it. And um, the ROI on that is sort of, um, it's a little abstract because what we've sort of found is some things don't manifest very clearly on a profit and loss statement, but that doesn't mean that it's not real ROI. So classic example is like getting everybody hoodies, right? That would show up as just a cost on the PL. Like where's the upside? But the upside is that there's less turnover. You know, someone's willing to take a client call at 6 PM, things like that. Right. Exactly. We've, we've had employees that would be a little late to an internal meeting and uh, they'd come in and they'd say, Hey, sorry, I was just circling the block trying to find the cheapest parking before I expensed it. And it's like, wow, like that's such a sense of ownership, like amazing. Like, how did we do that? Right. But the way you do it is by letting people work on the parts of the business that they find passionate. So I think as a, as a leader, you do need to provide some guidance, but then uh, within that, like you need to tell people where you're going and sort of plant that flagpole, how they get there is, is really something that the team should be involved in. Oh, I like that. I, um, yeah. I like that example. Um, the person finding parking that's the cheapest to expense. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. Brilliant. <laughs> I remember that happened. I looked at Rachel and we were like, whoa, that's cool. Uh, yeah. That I'm, is glad, cool. I'm glad we got there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Okay. Um, next question I have is something you, you mentioned before when we chat chatted previously, it's about your thousand small pivots approach. 
um, wanted mm-hmm. to ask you how you came up with this kind of term and what does it mean? Yeah, I think it's like, you know, you sort of look at a business and then five, six months from now, you look at the same business and it's, it's radically different, right? New business model, maybe new, new team, um, sometimes even like a new name, right? And it's easy to sort of conflate um, uh, evolution with revolution. So I think that this pivot thing has almost been like hijacked into like, okay, that business didn't work. Let's just do a different business. We still have some cash in the bank, like may as well, right? Uh, that's not a pivot. Uh, you know, to pivot, you need like one foot on the ground and then you kind of move the other one. Um, what our experience was with Five Crowd is that it was just many, many small pivots. Uh, so it was a constant process of validation and learning. And then, you know, we kept on adjusting. And um, we would sort of, you know, meet an advisor or something and then connect with them again. And uh, I remember constantly being a little surprised at their reaction that our business was totally different than it was. To me, it felt like, no, it's been the same. But it's like anything that's like small incremental changes, whether it's, you know, growing up and then you look at a picture of yourself, you're like, man, I was so young back then, right? <laughs> or, um, or really like, you know, um, anything where, where there's incremental change. Um, so, you know, that's what I advocate for. And, um, you know, I think the, the typical startup journey, right, is very different than how I've gone about building uh, companies. So, you know, typically, I guess you, you get a deck and an idea, and that's great because you can get some seed money from friends and family. And that's awesome. You'll get a new incubator. You'll get an MVP. That'll get you a new accelerator. You get a couple of smart people on your board of advisors with all that pedigree. And then it's like, maybe one day you get a customer, right? And what we've always done is just day one, like go and get customers and then they guide you. And so instead of having those big pivots, you end up with many, many small things as customers provide like constant validation in the process. I love it. Yeah. Are you doing that now with uh, your new company, Shelfcraft? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're working with like a big long list already of the Fortune 500s, companies like uh, Unilever, Church and Dwight, um, you know, Keurig, uh, L'Oreal. Um, yeah. Like uh, basically, you know, that's always been my belief is if you just go and get customers, then you don't need to do any of that stuff. Plus like the crazy thing is they pay you and then you can use that money to build the company. Um, <laughs> it's just like wild to me that these are, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I, it, it's almost like startup comedy. Sometimes it feels like it, you know? it is. It is. Yeah. yeah. Even with our experience working with enterprises, um, when you really understand like how they operate, like I have one example, which kind of blew my mind. They, it was close to the end of the quarter for them and they have these budgets. And so with most companies, you know, budgets can maybe roll over or they have to spend it. Right. But this mm-hmm. was like a hundred K remaining balance that some PM or something had mm-hmm. in the team and uh, some, they some use team, it. and they had to use it. So what yeah. they did was that they just went and uh, blew it on. I think it was like a big pa- team party um, or they did, or they used it also to do some courses for everybody, which I thought was a lot better. Yeah. Um, you see huge, uh, training spend in Q4. Um, yeah, one of the exactly. reasons that, uh, like cinema advertising still exists is that it happens to like in Q4, it's a great way to efficiently blow money, especially during the holidays. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, because of Sarbanes-Oxley compliance, the services have to be rendered before the end of the year. You can't really like accrue for it. So, exactly. um, a great strategy is just look up the targets fiscal year. And in the last month, call them every single day with like a $10,000 project that could be rendered in 24 hours. 
um, one of my favorite stories of this, because like, I was on the other side of this, right? And I was managing a, a pretty big budget. And depending on the day, I had to like either spend $10,000 or find $10,000 in the budget. And so uh, December 1, this woman called me. December 2, she called. December 3. And on like December 10th, I had to bring my budget down. I was like, okay, what do you want? And I was working on Johnson's Baby Products. And she had created a seal of approval uh, called uh, Parent Tested, Parent Approved. You might have heard of it. Um, really cool company. And uh, so... She's like, yeah, we can test your brand. And if you get it, you get the seal. I'm like, okay, cool. So we did the test. A few days later, she emails me, hey, congrats. Like, you won it. It's amazing. Um, here's an invoice for $10,000. I'm like, no problem. Paid. <laughs> then she emails me a circle that she drew and uh, done. I was like, that's incredible. Like, I should just have like, you know, best friend approved, like chef approved. Like, I'll just make a <laughs> book of seals and go to, go to brand people and be like, which one do you want? I got them all. Um, but then the funniest thing happened where, um, the next year we were doing like a half a million dollar print ad buy and we were adapting the creative from the U S and they had a, a new products award. We couldn't use that in Canada. So I used the seal of approval that I bought and it actually had her, um, email in or her, um, her website in the seal. So I was like, Whoa, this is amazing. Like she sold me a circle for like 10 grand and now I'm spending half a million dollars promoting it. Like uh-huh. <laughs> what a business. What a business. Um, but she didn't even bother calling me like January to, you know, November, right? It's like um, understanding the fiscal year is like critical. Yeah, exactly. Very, very true for enterprises. Their budgets are sometimes out of this control. Um, I'll share one more story. Uh, yeah. We recently came across um, with one of our large U.S. enterprise clients. It's, it was a large e-commerce initiative and they needed to do some data reporting. Um, and I think it's like around Tableau or something like that, but honestly, we scoped it out. It was like 10, <clears throat> 10 or 20 hours worth of real work to do. Um, so they had to go on their vendor approved list. And one of the largest consulting companies in the world, um, it's a company called Cognizant, uh, mm-hmm. was approved to do this type kind of stuff. And so they quoted them for the same amount of work because they were vendor approved 400,000 us dollars. Yeah. Totally. And you know, they're like, Oh, that's a lot. But then they got, they went and got the budget. You know? Yeah. Yeah. They got the no, budget I mean, like a couple uh, of days later from nowhere. Like, where did it come from? Where's this money coming from? You know? <laughs> yeah. It's, um, you know, after working within a big company and understanding how it works, it, it's, it's a huge, um, yeah, it's, it's amazing now being on the other side, uh, just to understand that process. Um, but yeah, like, um, you know, I think, I think if you've never worked, uh, on the other side of enterprise sales, like doing sales to enterprise is pretty tricky and none of it makes any sense. Um, exactly. but yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you some other questions about entrepreneurship. Um, I wanted mm-hmm. to ask how you probably get advice all the time good or bad, how do you filter out or how do you know and how do you filter out on the bad advice as an entrepreneur? And also what makes good advice? It's a good question, right? Um, I mean, I think that uh, looking for caveats is, is pretty interesting, right? Like in the science community, they almost take it to the extreme where you'll see somebody presenting a brand new finding and they're about to win like a Nobel Prize for it. And they're like, they open up their talk by discounting all the reasons when they're 
thesis doesn't apply or wh whatever it is, right? In the business community, for some reason, we do the opposite. It's almost like the MBA way of speaking where like you must project total confidence in what you believe. And I think it does a disservice to people that are trying to ingest that information. So I just look for words like, um, you know, maybe, or like you ought to consider or probably or things like that. Oftentimes I find that's the best advice. Like when, you know, somebody actually really believes in something, but they understand that there are situations where it doesn't work and uh, they can appreciate that. Um, the space like just reeks of survivorship bias where someone started a company, maybe got lucky, maybe it's the right timing and they have one experience. And now all of a sudden, you know, they're the expert. Um, I've never really gone to a, uh, a conference of like a panel of entrepreneurs that had, you know, mediocre outcomes, but like it'd be interesting to, to learn from that too. Right. Uh, so yeah, I think just looking for caveats is probably your best bet. And why, it's a good, it's a good thing you brought up. Why do you think it doesn't exist? Why is there no panel of like failed entrepreneurs or mediocre entrepreneurs yeah. who maybe tried and failed, but their learnings around those failures probably do super important. Yeah, totally. More justice. I, to people. I mean, I feel like in a parallel universe, I'd, I'd be on that non-existent panel. Um, you know, if like something had gone the other way. Um, it's interesting, right? We, we, we seem to sort of like as a community fetishize either like crazy success where you've hit that unicorn status and you're a name or we almost fetishize like total failure. Um, it's kind of like the like hustle porn stuff, you know, but now with like failure stuff and it's like guys like failures, failure is not good, <laughs> right? Uh, you should learn from it. And I, I've spoken at fuck up nights and I'm a big fan of, you know, what, what they do, but, um, yeah, that, that middle ground is where I find most businesses are, right? They've achieved some kind of like modicum of success and they're at an inflection point. And it's like, how do we get to the next level? Um, I feel like the best, the best community around that is sort of like, you know, the like YPO, EO, that kind of thing where you're surrounded by peers, uh, that group, but that's not super accessible for a lot of people. So yeah, it'd be interesting to, um, yeah, to do that. I think the other thing I was talking with somebody about is like, um, I really love the monk debates. I think that they're, they're, they're really great. And it's like, how come we don't have monk debates for business topics or yeah. other things? Right. What is that? I've never heard of monk debates. Oh, it's really cool. It's like, um, you know, for like political or social things, um, they'll get everyone in a room, bring in like the two or three experts on either side, um, take kind of a quick pulse of the audience of what they, um, believe going into it and then do a pulse at the end and see, you know, what changed, but it's a structured format where you've got kind of like an opening uh, monologue and then there's a moderator and you can really explore an issue. I feel like as a, even more broadly as a society, we've like lost that ability for civil discourse where, you know, now you're basically either like a snowflake or a Nazi politically. And, um, you know, even just like with business stuff, people believe things with so much conviction um, everything's polarized now. So I miss, I miss this, this kind of banter that we can have where we just like explore a topic and, you know, maybe I'll actually change my view on it. Like it's, you know, that's, uh, we need more of that. Uh, yeah, that's true. sort of have not just a healthy society, I think, but also a healthy, like, you know, um, entrepreneurial community. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate that, um, there's that whole like killing it culture that come up has come up a lot yeah, in some totally. of the conversations. Like you're always, you know, showing this kind of fake um, projection, so to speak, of yourself. Um, but inside, you're probably just crying, like crying like a little baby because you hate your life and you don't know how to do certain things. 
Yeah. Yeah. But, Every, everyone, it's really hard to read people. Right. And you get a lot of um, like scene stirs and entrepreneurs, right. Especially at some of these events and you just have like no idea what's legit and what's not sometimes. Um, even like taking to the extreme, right. Like right now you've got like Elizabeth Holmes in trial for fraud, but like Adam Newman is kind of like walking away a billionaire. Uh, it's yeah. like, how did that happen? And, yeah. Um, it's weird. You can have any kind of outcome, it seems nowadays, and you can have polarized outcomes on top of the outcomes. So, um, yeah, yeah. I think this sort of like middle area of like having a real business, growing it, and then trying to get to the next level. Um, I'd love to sort of see more stuff around that. That'd be great. Hope so. One day, right? We're trying to push yeah. for change doing the show as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Um, Bram, a couple more questions. Um, what I wanted to ask was around for a long time, I think you've acted based on that urgency and importance. And you've, I think, touched upon it a bit. But now you kind of prioritize based on what really inspires you. Um, mm -hmm. What made you really kind of see that shift uh, from one to the other, like at a foundational level? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, any lesson here you could kind of give to other entrepreneurs who are in the middle of maybe that hustle? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, entrepreneurship is, um, it's definitely a career, right? It's definitely a job, but more than anything, it's like a way of just expressing myself uh, creatively and, you know, my, my passions, my beliefs, that sort of thing. Um, I feel like it's somewhere in between how artists express themselves and how athletes express themselves. Like if you're an elite athlete, it's not just a job, right? It's like, what kind of breakfast do you eat in the morning? What time you wake up, right? And if you're an artist, it's like, again, it's not just a career. It's, it's you know, finding inspiration and um, structuring your weekends, all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, I think, you know, getting in touch with that inner passion is, is, is key uh, sort of for that reason. So um, yeah, just sort of like reflecting on what entrepreneurship means to me. And the other thing is, you know, I'm pretty fortunate because, um, you know, after Rachel and I, um, um, you know, had our company acquired, you know, we, it offered us a certain element of like financial freedom. Um, but with that, you know, I sort of had to confront all this, I had to confront all the bullshit in my life. Um, she sort of took off to Southeast Asia and was vagabonding on beaches for a year. And I thought I wanted to do that. <laughs> and, you know, the acquisition happened and I was like, oh no, that's all BS. Like I actually just want to work really hard again and start another company. Like that's all I want to do right now. So, um, Interesting. you know, it's, yeah, yeah, was, you know, I feel like it's sort of cliche, but it was unexpected for me at the time. I, I, I used to tell myself kind of those like only ifs, right? Like if only I could do this, I'd love to do that. And then you sort of find yourself at that crossroads and you realize that uh, well, it's like everyone who said it was about the journey is actually right. So, you know, the best advice any entrepreneur actually ever gave me, my buddy Rob, he said, uh, take lots of pictures. And I half listened to him. I should have taken more pictures because now, you know, looking back, I, it, there were so many moments, but it was kind of all a blur, right? We were just moving so fast. I, I always wish I had more photos. Interesting. Take more pictures yeah. of what though? Of like what you were oh, going like, through like, the people? Yeah, like you. anytime you find yourself in a weird situation, take a selfie, right? Um, whether like you're down and out, Rachel and I, anytime we were like real down and out, we'd end up going for pizza and, uh, you know, we'd just be mopey and we would take a selfie. <laughs> um, at one point in time, I wanted to get to know our freelancers. So I flew around the world. Uh, we had a lot of credit card points because we were paying them with credit cards online. So I ended up uh, using that to go to like India and uh, Croatia. And when I was in Florida, um, 
you know, we were, I was, it was crash on the couch of these like freelancers and run groceries with them. And I ended up uh, babysitting uh, her like six-year-old kid. And then uh, I had to carry him across the road uh, to the neighbors, but he was passed out and he was like slung over my shoulder. And I'm in like remote, uh, you know, Pensacola and uh, met this seven-year-old that I just met over. And I'm like, what am I doing with my life? And that's, <laughs> that's awesome. you know, that's like, yeah, but that's where entrepreneurship takes you. And so that's what I mean by take photos. You, you want to remember those like weird moments. I love it. I love it. I'll we'll definitely capture that uh, excerpt. I think it's gold. Um, yeah. Last question for you, Bram, and then we'll wrap up. Um, it's kind of a my bonus round question. We've spoken about productivity, you know, things to do. If you were to try to accomplish your next kind of 10-year goals in the next six months, and you like, if you had like a gun against your head, what what would you do? Yeah, I feel like um, you should sort of only ever business plan as long as you've been in business, if that makes sense. So like if you've been in business a day, it's like, okay, what am I doing tomorrow, a week? <laughs> what am I doing next week, a month, right? Uh, with Shelfgram, I've been in business now for like a year and a half. So in terms of goal setting, I'm really only looking at, okay, well, what's the next year going to look like? Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe uh, I'll reach back out and let you know at like the five-year mark or something like that, you know, or the 10-year mark. <laughs> Um, but I don't really think much further out than that. Um, okay. Yeah, it's uh, I, th- I find it ends up being sort of like false precision because if you were to ask me 10 years ago where I'd want to be now, I'd have like never come up with that, you know? Um, even if I wrote it in pencil and kept erasing it, uh, I just felt like I have no idea where I'll be in 10 years, um, but I've got a pretty good sense of where I want to be, you know, a year, a year and a half from now. That's interesting. I, I never thought of that kind yeah. of parallel. If you've been in business for a year, think about one year, five years, five years, and that relationship. Yeah. Cool. Smart. Yeah. I don't know. It's like a good kind of rule. It um, is. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah, is very yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Uh, Bram, thank you so, so much for coming on our show today. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you to all of our dear listeners for tuning in always and supporting the show and following us on LinkedIn. We never take it for granted. So we will have more cool guests coming our way soon. <laughs>